So hello everybody, this is Jack, the CEO of a T3 Experts with another T3 Fellows Mentor interview. And today I have Vanessa Bergmark of Red Oak Realty with us to talk about her experience growing and developing her company. So Vanessa, are you here with us? I am. Hi. Hello. Well, um, you know, I, first of all, I want to say I really enjoyed, we, we talked a little bit before you came on as a mentor. We didn't know each other very well. And you told me the story of how you came to Red Oak Realty. And and, uh, and I wanted to reprise that for our audience so they can hear about, you know, how you how you came to run this, you know, really interesting and locally dominant real estate brokerage in your market. And, and can you give us your, your personal story and how, how did you get to Red Oak Realty? And then once you were there, what happened? Sure, sure. Um, so I was running a larger brokerage. I was running a Keller Williams, um, literally pretty much around the corner uh, from the, the Red Oak office in Oakland. And, um, and it, we, you know, it was, a, it was a hot market. It was it, from 2004, I think it was till 2007 that I'd been running Keller Williams. I'd always done business with Red Oak. I'd respected it as a brokerage. Um, it was very different because it was a smaller, more boutique brand. Um, with just, you know, a small amount of agents, maybe about 25 or so, uh, with an office over in Berkeley that had about 25 agents and then 25 or so in, in Oakland. And um, I had recently um, adopted my first child, and I was, you know, just kind of going through the, the, the becoming a new mom and, um, and just, you know, the market was very, very it was there was a lot going on. It was right around that 2007 period, and I got a call from um, from an agent that was at Red Oak that had transferred over, and had said, you know, I really think you should come and run this this office. I think you would love it here. And I actually didn't. I wasn't really looking, but I was sort of in my head um, getting ready for a change. I was at a different point in my life. I had a young child. My perspectives were changing. I. Um, I'd had, you know, there was a lot of drama and working late and I had 165 agents. And so I just decided, okay, you know, I'd always heard, you know, at every point, talk to the competition and always, always go on the interview. So I did and I I just instantly connected. I connected with the philosophy. I connected with the the, the whole way they were doing business. Um, I got to meet the founders and, and sit down with them and spend a good amount of time and Pretty much, uh, I really felt like my my heart had moved over before the end of the conversation was even done, and I um, it was a hard thing because I was I was stepping back from running an entire office of 165 agents where I was in charge and I was, you know, I was not the owner but I was in charge and I was making the decisions and I was going to go back to running a smaller brokerage, an independent, uh, not a very well known brand, um, but a respected brand of 25. Um, so it felt like I was almost taking a step back, which I was a little concerned about career-wise, but I think my, um, you know, my, again, life had sort of changed, so I just, I, I basically went for it and um, went over there in uh, 2007, right before the market crashed, I think it crashed about, Neiman Brothers probably crashed about six weeks later, and uh, yeah, it was a whole totally new experience, <laughs> um, and then it yeah. evolved into what it kind of is today, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. Yeah, we will. So, well, before we I, before we get into that, um, you know, can you drill down a little bit deeper on what were the reasons where you felt connected to you know this small independent local brand where you said you know I think this might be a better fit for me. Um, 
uh, first of all, it looked like the day-to-day experience of running it was going to be more intimate, that, um, you know, it was going to be 25 agents that were carefully selected by that brand to, to grow that company. And um, it was going to be, you know, g- getting a personal relationship with them, working directly with the owners. So the ability to um, have an influence on the operations, like it, headquarters was at that table with those four people. And the interaction I was going to do were with the 25 agents and their clients. And it just felt more personal um, than what I had been used to, which was, you know, headquarters in another state, uh, the directive is being, you know, handled completely, not even just outside of my own office, but outside of my own state with people that I really didn't know. Um, and, you know, I was, I was dealing with, you know, 165 agents, which was rewarding in a lot of senses, but I could never really drill down to that personal level and experience the transaction and have an influence on the way the transaction was done on a very local level in, in my city that I lived in and was raising a child in and would send them to school. And, you know, so there was that level of just, um, I guess I would just call it intimacy that I knew that mm-hmm. there would be a very different opportunity to get more engaged. So that was, you know, the day to day. And then just on the growth of the company, there were the, the owners were at that time saying that, you know, they, they knew they had to grow, they knew they had to change, but they were feeling like that change needed to come in from the outside and, you know, potentially the next generation of the industry and that they were mm-hmm. sort of getting ready to pass that torch. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was just the opportunity of being a part of something that even though on paper was smaller, felt bigger. Got it. So, Got it. Yeah. yeah. So a combination of the, the engagement and being closer to the agents and closer to the, their customers, plus the possibility for growth and, and having, having owners that wanted to bring in new leadership. Yeah, I think it was all of that. I think it was just knowing that like what I was about to do day to day would matter and I would possibly mm. see the results with my own eyes. So Got it. that was really, that was the, the difference in saying, you know, what I said earlier, like it felt like I was maybe taking a step back on paper. I'm like, oh, you know, you're running this whole big thing. It's a bigger, there's more opportunity because there's more leadership positions around the state or within the model. But that didn't matter as much when I saw just really the day to day connection mm-hmm. that could possibly be provided on a more local level. Great. Well, let's talk about where, where, so 2007, right before the crash of the market, uh, you know, it's 2015 now. What's happened since then in terms of your growth and, and where is the company today? Well, I think back then when I came on, we were somewhere between, depending on which city you pull, but I remember pulling it and it was, we were around 12th in market share. And again, it was 2000, it was right at 2007. We were coming out of that, that great boom, uh, especially in the Bay Area with the technology and the dot coms. And, you know, there was a lot of stuff that had come out of that. So mm-hmm. there had been this inflation in, in value and mm-hmm. then an inflation of just, a, you know, an abundance of, of real estate companies. So we were, you know, as a little local brand, Red Oak was sort of pushed back a little bit. And although it was doing well, it was not really leading the market. Um, you know, 2007, 2008, 2009 happened. You know, companies disappeared overnight. Um, companies swallowed each other up. Uh, you know, agents defected to other companies. And, you know, during that time, it was, I always I, I say it was like head down, learn an entirely different business. You know, I, we went from overbiddings and loose banking to 
ridiculous banking restrictions, REOs, short sales. It was it was a whole new industry. Um, agents going from being totally flushed and you know not running on a business plan to all of a sudden not knowing where their next check was going to come from, and clients in very difficult financial situations. So um, it was a you know it was a tough time. And I think I think I'd say at that time the brokerage was just it was hanging on. It was like treading water. Um, so what, you know what we did was just learned how to do the business, but then also at the same time, I would say we took some risks on, you know, we've got really nothing to lose. Let's just go for this idea or try this approach or add on this agent or, you know, hold this, um, hold this line of defense. And we kept doing that. And, um, and then one day it was like 2010 and we had the opportunity at that point to, to purchase the company. Um, and we still weren't out of that market. You know, it was still a very, very tough market. But we felt like, you know, we had three years under our belt of really having um, the owners give us the reins and, and sort of take control. So we ended up, my business partner and I, you know, purchasing the company. And then um, and then we got now to, you know, 2015, fast forward, we're about third in market share. Um, so we've moved up significantly. We've grown from about, I want to say when I took over, there was probably about 70 agents. We dropped down to about a low of 55. And now... We are up to 84 agents. Um, we probably lost half our staff, but then hired back, not hired new, but basically increased our staff to support our agent base and to support what we put in place to about 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're, we're definitely profitable and, um, you know, running, a, I would say, a very respectable, solid um, leading brokerage, leading independent brokerage in our market. So, and that was not the plan. Yeah. Really, there was no plan. There was no plan. Honest. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's one of the, I've been asking the mentors, I said, and so many of the, all the mentors went through this period. Uh, and that that's actually a theme is that, you know, that I'm, I'm hearing over and over again is we didn't really have a plan of how to make it through that time. We just worked really hard. <laughs> so everybody, it's kind of the consistent message I'm getting from everybody. We worked really hard. We tried different things. Um, we had some wins. We had some losses. And we didn't give up is 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 apparently the formula <laughs> to make it through yeah. that. that. Which, is, which sounds a little bit like luck, right? Yeah. So it's a little disturbing if you're like, how do I do this? But it wasn't really luck. I mean... If, I guess if we had to go back and could go through the play-by-play, there was an immense amount of hard work. Um, there was very little payback. The gratification came not from, like, hitting your goals, but, like, living another day. I mean, that was really – it was that was it. It was like it was like the dark ages. We were like, oh, we're still here the next day. And, wow, we just had another agent join us. And, mm. oh, um, wow, we had a profitable month. Mm. Um, we weren't at break even. Uh, so it was these little incremental baby steps. And then we, I think the key thing was that we just put very good habits in place. You know, when you hear like your grandmother talk about the Great Depression and they would be like, oh, well, we always saved, you know, the, the crust of the bread and we made another dinner out of that the next night. That's what it sort of felt like. Mm-hmm. We put these tiny little habits in place that, you know, over the course of a long time have very big results. And you know, there again, there we tried to work with a plan, but everything kept changing so much, and the plan like became obsolete three months later. So we were like, you know, ditch the plan. There is no plan. Mm. Got it. Got it. Well, um, did you have any 
did you seek any outside guidance? Did you have any peers that you talked to during that period or um, a mentor or a you know, coach or consultant? Did you guys seek out anybody from outside the company to help while you were building the company? Um, yes. We, so we had a coach, and she had been with the original, we called them the RO4, the Red Oak 4. They had been like the founders of the company, and she'd been with them for about 12 years. Um, and she's actually a coach out of, out of DC, this woman, Nancy. And, um, so we sort of inherited her and, um, and I would have to say she was the person that kept us on track. We used to call her our real estate mom because she'd been there, you know, seen it, done it. And she also had perspectives about what was happening at other companies. So she was able to bring that perspective and, um, you know, experience, even though we weren't experienced it, she had, you know, it was our first time experiencing it. She had seen it before or had seen how somebody maybe failed or, or succeeded with that. So we, we, we met with her every week and it was expensive. I mean, it mm. was, that mm. was something that, you know, it was, it would probably be looked upon as like a luxury, like, Oh, that is not a line item that you need in your P and L. Um, but my God, in hindsight, if we had taken that out and not have done that, I think we would have made two to three times as more mistakes as we, as we did. She kept us, I mean, we made mistakes, don't get me wrong, but she kept us from making very big mistakes. And um, she was someone to bounce ideas off of because you couldn't do what the competition was doing. You couldn't just look up and be like, oh, well, they were doing this, we should mimic it. Because everybody right. was at a different place. Mm. Some people were worse off, some people were better off. So we had to really figure out like, what did we need to do for us, our people, where we were in the market, our clientele. And that was different than just looking at your peers and being like, oh, that looks like it'll work, you know. Um, so, yeah, so we had we had her. And I would say, hands down, best decision we make. And we still have her today. So we had her both in the down market and in the up market. Um, and I can't imagine, I still talk with her every single week, Monday morning, 9.30. Wow. For seven years. Well, I, I uh, th that's a that's a longstanding strategic relationship for the company with that level of consistency. I didn't. About twenty years. Yeah. So I, I didn't know the answer to that question when I asked it. <laughs> so it's always a scary question. Like, you know, I wonder, you know, because part of what I, I act as a consultant to uh, many different brokerage firms and through the fellows program, obviously we play that role with the, the fellows participants. Um, you know, so it's so it's a question that we'd like the answer to be. Yeah, we have a great relationship with a coach or consultant or people that have helped us grow our business. But that's um, that's more significant than I knew. So uh, so great. Terrific. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the turning points for the business? You've kind of mentioned a few in terms of that you had some everyday everyday successes some small things that kind of kept the company going and kept it alive. Are there any things you can point out and say that was a, that was a major turning point for us. So that was something where things really changed in the business or when new possibilities opened up for you. You know, I think um, one of the, the biggest moves we made was it was still the downturn and we, um, it, it, it was on the, I guess it was on the upswing, but at the time we didn't really know it, right? Everybody was still dealing with like PTSD around it. Yeah. Um, and we actually made a move to move our business, uh, move our office location, take on a whole um, 
uh, remodel of a, of a bank space, uh, but it was in a way better location. It was higher rent, um, uh, mainly because we had to do the, you know, the T&Is in it, but we basically put in a whole new model of how we wanted the office to look and feel. Mm. And that was the first time where we, we actually spent money. Um, we borrowed some, but we had a very, very you know, strategic plan about how we would pay it back. But we, we invested in our idea. And it was the first time we took like, what we had wanted in our heads, took the money, took the risk, and, and changed up the way the business had been running for mm-hmm. very many years with mm-hmm. a new idea, a new approach, a new way, a new neighborhood, um, a new way of having the you know, agents interact and integrate with one another. And um, we didn't know how that would be. It was not a very popular idea. It was um, in an area that there was a lot of competition, so it could have worked against us. It could have backfired. But we really felt, we, and we had to push hard. We, we were fought by the city, by the local uh, competitors. I mean, there was nothing about it that was easy. Everything was set back. It cost three times more than we thought it would. Uh, the agents hated the idea at first, and then we prevailed. We did it anyway. We really just kind of went on intuition and not backing down. And we, we knew that there was, you know, it was sort of putting it all on like red or black, right? It was just like, we're gambling on this one, but we felt very strongly about it. That was a game changer because it, it got, it, it took a lot to push it through. So we really got on the map as far as like pushing it through and not backing down. I think our mm-hmm. ownership group got a lot of respect locally. Um, then agents came on and they loved the concept. They thought they would hate it. They really liked it. Um, it brought us into a new bracket of price points. So that elevated our purchase price because we were in the right neighborhood. And then once uh, everybody had sort of sat on the sidelines and watched, it had the right people come over um, proactively to talk to us. So then it ended up being a recruiting piece as well. So, wow, that is a full move right there. Yeah, <laughs> what what didn't you accomplish time. with that? <laughs> yeah, it, had, it was like one big move. And we knew it. We knew it would be. I mean, deep down we knew it would be, which is why we, we fought, the, fought you know, the big fight around it. But it did. It had, it had so many far-reaching um, success points because of that one strategic move, which has now enabled us to do another one and potentially will enable us to do another one. So we've seen that it actually worked. Um, and it sort of empowered us and it empowered our people. Got it. Well, that's terrific. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad I asked. Um, <laughs> were there any, any other, any other things like that? I mean, I know I'm going to ask about one in particular, but were there any other, uh, changes or, or things that you did that you thought, well, that, that was a turning point or that was another significant change? Um, you know, I think I think one of the the key things that happened was, you know, during the downturn, we heard, you know, people were, were leaving. There were people that were going to other brokerages, different models, just because, you know, money was tight, commission structures changed, and they were, you know, they were chasing the dollar more so than the support. And then, you know, a lot of brokerages were cutting their support. So one of the things we did during that time, which seems a little counterintuitive, was we really held fast on our commission structures. Mm-hmm. And we really did not back down out of fear, you know, that, oh, we're going to lose people and they're going to go to another brokerage. And we're going to, if we lose one person, that's going to, you know, affect our bottom line. We really felt like it was a time that we had a, um, we had a kind of really back our value proposition. And it was not about being the cheapest place to work. It was about being the best place to work, the sort of the fiercest place to work, the one that was going to change the way they, that, you know, the, the local industry acted and, 
changed the way agents interacted with one another. And I think we started doing that by saying, if you're going to leave because of this, then we're going to have to let you leave, but we're not going to keep on cannibalizing our, ourselves to preserve this relationship. If we do that with you, we do it with the next one, we do it with the next one soon. We're, we're where we feared we would be by letting you go. We'll put, put the whole brokerage there. And that was a very difficult time because we would run those numbers and be like, oh my God, this could really backfire. But strangely enough, I think because we stood behind it and we took the risk, there was a certain respect level that was developed. Um, and our, and we, we had a very transparent model where we shared with our agents, like this is why we can't do that and let us show how, you know, show you how the business works and why we need to hold fast to, you know, this commission schedule and not just give you another 10% because somebody else said they would. Um, that created a lot of respect. It created eventually revenue. That revenue, instead of just taking it and putting it in our pocket, we put it into rebuilding the offices and repositioning the company and we put it into increasing the staff and giving back to those agents that we promised. Um, you know, that we were more about value and support than we were about money. We put it back. We hired the best. Um, we, we, we redid all of our marketing. We, we redid everything, uh, our listing presentations, everything that we could, our entire marketing plans for our clients, our ad campaigns, so that our agents felt um, the payback of that their money may be coming in or their commission supposed may be more aggressive, but that they were actually getting something very big out of that. And that was day-to-day -day support and always keeping very, um, you know, kind of high-end standards around our marketing and the way we ran the company. So it was another one that, again, was sort of counterintuitive. It was very scary. I remember going home at night just waiting for the phone to ring or get that email of, like, I'm going anyway. Um, and we lost a few, but I'd say that on a whole, 98% probably stayed. Mm. And we made it out of there. Oh, that's impressive. And, and, and you hit the thing, because I, I think your your work in continuing to develop the, the marketing for the company, uh, both, you know, what I've seen on the web and, uh, you know, what I know is going on offline um, is one of the things that I think for me makes Red Oak stick out was that the, the marketing work was always good and the technology and how, how you continue to invest in that even through a period where it might, it might've been hard to do that. Um, so that, that's great. And, and that it helped with reta retaining people and, you stood by the, the values of the brand. Yeah, yeah. It definitely paid off in, in retention. People started becoming very proud of it. Um, and they started seeing that we were walking the talk. We, we yeah. were doing what we said. And we're con I mean, we are still constantly, constantly upgrading. We never, ever have sat back and been like, this is going to work year after year. We, we just changed the CMA. We're redoing our website. We just did a huge ad campaign because the market changed. It's really pushing towards San Francisco. So we switched everything um, in the last two years and it really started marketing towards the San Francisco buyer, which, mm. you know, again, it's, it's expensive. It's time consuming. There's a lot of creative around it. But we are constantly looking at how we can um, improve Mm. both the the day-to-day -day of our agents but you know then the day-to-day -day of our clientele like the buyers and sellers that used to work with red oak so yeah and i don't think i don't think if i own this company for another 30 years i think probably the day before i would sell it or retire or whatever happens i will still be showing <laughs> up to yeah know, yeah look at it from another perspective yeah you don't put your feet up yep that's great that's great. Well, I'm going to ask you. So the next question I've got is the flip side of this one, and, and it's <laughs> and I, it's ended up being a. I didn't intend it this way, but everybody has said it's a difficult question. 
and 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 I'm, I don't want to well, set now it up. Loaded. Now it's loaded. I don't want to set it up to be a difficult question, but all the mentors have struggled with it to say, well, what are things that happened that maybe didn't work that that you learned from? Where you said, oh, well, we tried this or we did that, or there were things. And you know, in general, I'm 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 just looking for a lot of our fellows who are building their the T3 fellows participants who are building their own brokerages. You know, sometimes just knowing what to avoid is uh can can be you know just knowing where to stay out of trouble or or going into things and not having blinders on about it uh is is as big of a help as knowing what to do you know um yeah that is kind of a hard question because you know there's so many things that didn't work and strangely enough it's you don't hold on to the memory of what that specific thing was but you've got to hold on to the sort of the symbolism behind it and Mm. i i don't know if that makes sense but it's not like you know, we used Twitter and it was a flop and we just, right? So yeah. that's Twitter. Maybe, maybe Twitter would work, but that's not really the answer. I think the answer is we sometimes, and I think this is the biggest struggle when you have an existing brand mm. and it probably becomes a big struggle when you have growth with it, just a few, like the, like when you go from startup to sort of corporate or something and, and every brokerage eventually goes from their very early days when they're six or seven to when it goes to 25 and it feels like no one knows each other. Um, it's We were sometimes as an ownership group further ahead in where we wanted to be in running the company um, than our agents were able to keep up. Mm. You know, so there was this, we knew where we should be because we spent all day you know, researching and reading and talking and meeting and, you know, working out the details. And there's a, there's a big separation and a big divide that every broker owner that's not selling anymore and wants an administrative staff team needs to be careful of. And it's that great divide between the way it's done on paper and in advertising and marketing and the way it's really practiced in real life, like the agents hitting the ground in the moment with their clients. And, you know, technology could be this amazing thing where, like, just, just you know, take the CMA and enter all your leads in there and then just put a little note when you follow up with them. And that sounds great to the staff person that's at a desk for seven hours a day. It's so easy. Just do it. But when you're a salesperson and you've got, you know, four offers going out and you're taking three more clients out the next day, you're not opening up your CMA while you're, you know, at a stoplight trying to meet. So there was just sometimes this, this divide. And I think that that divide still exists. And we have to kind of watch our pacing on what we implement and how we implement it and if it's really valid for the agents. Because uh, you could put, spend a lot of money on technology. You could spend a lot of money on marketing. And they're just, they're just not buying it. They're just not into it. And then you get, you get angry because they don't appreciate it. And you spend all this money and it's for them. And you have to ask yourself, was it, was it really for them or was it because it was my staff's idea? Um, I mean, my, I look at my staff. We have 13 people on there. 12 of them, actually 11 of them, are highly administrative systems compliance brains. You know, mm. they mm-hmm. they walk, you know, from A to B to C to D. And then there's two of us that have that very sales approach where it's all over the map. And, and we have to often bring in some of those agents and really check with, is this going to fly before we waste time, energy, and money on something that they're not going to buy into. Um, and so in the beginning, when we first took over ownership, we did that a lot more than we do now. We really, we have an advisory board where we have the agents come in and we really kind of talk about, like, is this going to matter to you? 
is this going to matter to just three of you or is the entire company really going to get something out of this? Mm. And um, we started to pay attention to that, you know, sometimes what we think and what they think and what the clients think, most importantly, are three different things. So that's probably the, the thing that I have to consistently remind myself and we all remind each other of during our staff meetings and ownership meetings is, you know, slow down and make sure that this is a valuable approach. Think it through mm. um, and think if they're going to want to want it. Because I, we spent quite possibly maybe $200,000 on stupid products and things. <laughs> oh, just, just a couple use. hundred thousand dollars doing yeah, stuff. Just a couple hundred, and we're small, <laughs> right? Just a couple hundred thousand. Yeah. Just, no, no big deal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just like, what is that? Two college educations on. Yeah. No, I, I, I've, I've talked to, so I've talked to the, you know, our, our participants in the fellows program and, and, um, you know, I tell them, uh, and you just validated it. I said, you know, people that build a significant brokerage in their local market easily spend into the six figures and it takes seven or eight years. You know, it takes a lot of work and a lot of money. Uh, and you just told me you spent 200 grand on things that didn't work. I mean, we didn't, we're not even talking about the, what was. No, we're not talking about the things that worked. <laughs> yeah, and, so. I, and I could be wrong. I'm probably lower. I yeah, you're probably underestimated. Be like, yeah. <laughs> you probably, if yeah, you I really knew the number. So she, yeah. Exactly. I only told her that so she wouldn't have a heart attack and something. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, no, I think it's probably higher than that. And those are the things that just were like, just get rid of it. Just throw it out and get rid of it. Just don't even try to. Yeah make it work don't sell it off just kill it bury it yeah, yeah. um yeah well that's so good that I, I, the biggest yeah great coaching uh for anybody that's that is looking at, at you know building a, a, a local brokerage is you really can't spend an incredible amount of time and money on things that maybe aren't what are going to help your agents be more productive or that they're going to value and um you know that, that that's important to check in and make make sure everybody's on board um, for sure so well and i think you answered I've, I've i've asked everybody this question based on you know what steve jobs said that deciding what not to do is as important as deciding what to do are there any things in your company that you've decided just not to do and you know you said twitter earlier but you know that that, that is a small example are there any things where you just go we just don't do that we've decided not to do that you know, we, um, so I can't tell you many times our agents will say, why don't we just open an office here, right? Like, right. Why don't we just go through the tunnel or why don't we go to San Francisco and open up an office? Or, uh, so we're very strategic about where we want our growth mm. and watching migration patterns and watching, I mean, I really call them migrations because they really do happen. Like they go from San Francisco, they move over to the Oakland, Berkeley area, and then they migrate through the tunnels or over to Marin County for schools. And so we, you know, we carefully follow that and say, like, okay, where would we strategically position ourselves? But, you know, we have a couple of recruits or something that would be like, if you only opened an office here, no, we don't, we know where we want to be and we know why we want to be there. And there's a couple of things mm. out there that we've been paying attention to, but we're not just going to do it because, you know, it might mean that four people want it um, or 10 people are saying it'd be a great idea. Um, I think technology there's a lot of stuff just going into different fields like uh, property management or um, whether you want to go into insurance or different ancillary businesses you know you'll sit and talk with somebody that says I I you know have this increase in revenue of you know 20% because I did X you know we don't just suddenly add on um, whether it be a new office or a new 
a revenue stream just because we saw somebody else do it and they were successful. It has to be in alignment with, okay, how, how many more hires will we have to make and how much is that going to, you know, increase our overhead and what sort of market are we heading into? And so there's always that, there's more of a process of elimination, just really going rather than going too wide and spreading ourselves out and having to learn new markets. And we would, we really have moved where we want to go deep, very, very deep locally. And there's a risk around, you know, if this market collapses, we haven't hedged our bets. But um, there's something about just sort of like, I don't know, it's almost like sticking to string instruments, right? All of a sudden, I'm not saying, I'm like, okay, I know the violin, I could probably move over to the cello, but I'm staying within the same family. You know, I don't want to all of a sudden go from, you know, a violin to drums to writing a book to starting a modeling agency, all because I know how to do something in business. You know, right. you know I, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. it's just it you don't want to go too out of your comfort zone. And brokerages are like monkey see, monkey do, right? Oh, they put their pictures horizontal, socially. Oh, they used, you know, QR codes. That's a great idea. <laughs> so I, I just, I never really. I watch what other people are doing, but I feel like we really just kind of get together and say, like, oh, who cares what they're doing? Do we want that? Is that what we want to do? So those are the things that I'd say we just sort of – we don't do. There's, yeah. there's a lot more that we don't do than what we do do. Yeah, so so keeping alignment with, you know, the strengths that you have, the staff, the team you've put together – uh, not and this is so prevalent. Not just copying what the competition or people in other markets do, uh, which I I really think this is. It's like a I call real estate like a photocopier business. Like people go, well, they did it, I'm gonna do it, and it's so common. And to avoid oh, to yeah. do that, yeah, to and be more strategic about it. Uh, that that's a great great coaching. Also, um, let's let's talk a little bit about your leadership team and uh, their characteristics. You know who's on your team and then, you know, tell me about the dynamic of the team and, and kind of how you work together as a leadership team. Yeah, but I have a, I have a fantastic leadership team. Um, I think that is the art of, um, you know, we all often talk about, you know, who you hire as an agent in your brokerage is really, it's how, whether or not you'll be successful. And I completely agree with that, but I do believe that who you hire as your staff to support those agents mm. is going to be who you retain and who you also attract. And I put just as much effort and emphasis into who we hire down to who is our front desk receptionist mm. because they are the, you know, they're the hub of the office as far as they set the culture as far as how much they're willing to help, how they greet clients, how they process, you know, strange information, how they get information back to us that they think is important. So everyone on our team, we have a staff of 13, which is, which is pretty high for a two person mm -hmm. office. Um, there's myself, um, who's the overall general manager and I still do a lot of the overseeing of the sales. So, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's, you know, listing presentations or strategic planning for agents around deals or uh, deal doctoring, coaching, you know, I'm, I'm in that office a lot. And then I have another sales manager who, you know, we take turns uh, at each one of our offices. So we break it up and spend a few days each. I have a CFO who's my business partner who does CFO and operations. So he does all of the finances and operations. I have a marketing director who runs our marketing team of basically three and a half. And um, he oversees our lead management program, our um, ad campaigns, our marketing, our statistics, our trainings around statistics. Um, and we have, you know, a team under him that does sort of like all of our listing prep and 
overall ad campaigns and marketing and we have an on-site creative person that does all of our you know ideas and creatives and we're very very big on our marketing um, we have a transaction team because it's the state of California so we don't give our transactions to uh, a legal team so we do all of our own paperwork so we have a director of that team and each one of our agents has an assigned um, transaction coordinator to oversee and double check all of the legal requirements so it's a pretty big team we um, but each each unit each you know sort of domain like the transaction has its own director marketing has its own director sales has its own director mm. and then I do you know, direct sales and we, we touch marketing probably more and then operations touches a lot of transactions so but everyone has a, a manager that's responsible for getting everything down to the rest of the team and we work more so through the managers then, you know, I don't go to each transaction coordinator and tell them what to do or oversee the transaction director does. Um, and everybody's held really accountable for their team success. And frankly, when agents come to me and say, well, oh, this happened with marketing, I'm like, bring it to the marketing director. That's why we have a director. That's why we want your input. We want your feedback. But um, I really, really, I, I feel empower my directors to run their divisions. Um, and they do a phenomenal job, and they take a lot of pride in how they run it because it's really their baby. Mm. Got it. And how long did it take you to put that team together? Just, just out of curiosity, was the you know was were there some key hires to happen first, or is this something that how how did it evolve? Um, yeah, I think we had there was one person that had been with us since the you know for 15 years and she's still with us mm. um but pretty much we we just did our first key hire was Eamon in marketing and you know he was a high salary and um he we brought him on to, to really just rebuild our technology and our social media and our website and our lead portion and then he grew into sort of the marketing creative design um and it just evolved we, we knew we had a need that both my business partner and I could not fill, which was a technology marketing need. We had great ideas, but we didn't know how to implement it. Mm. I am like sales through and through. And my CFO is finance through and through. And we really needed like that creative tech person. So we, we took that leap and brought him on. And then we sort of evolved the teams from that point on. Uh, we'd never had a transaction director. So then we moved to one of the people that were in that position up to a leadership role, um, it, it evolved. We evolved. didn't go in saying, here's the hierarchy, and mm. we're going to fill each one of these roles. No, it just really just, we saw talent, we moved it up to run the team, and then we filled, we backfilled in, you know, the loss of that person related to the leadership role with a more administrative secondary role. And uh, we let them hire, we let them um, ultimately be in charge of who they hire to their team. We let them negotiate all the salaries, we give them a budget. So yeah, they they run it like I mean that's where we run it like almost like a very little little bit in the corporate sense where they've got their own little you mm -hmm. know um, they've got their own accountability on that and and if something goes wrong they're the ones that have to kind of oversee that position and have the conversations um, so it's not all I think again it's, it's traditionally all falls on the sales manager broker owner mm -hmm. to handle sort of like hiring, firing, any administrative, no, the way we run it is, you know, you're brought in and you are responsible for both the success and failure. And um, I think that people, when they have that opportunity to really, you know, 
explore their failures and, um, you know, sort of gain momentum with their successes. There's so much growth for them. And when then we meet, you were saying, you know, how we actually meet every other week um, mm-hmm. for a two-hour meeting. And we go through every department talks about what's going on and what they're doing. And they're fun. They're actually fun meetings. We used to do them every single week, but they were just getting too long and there was too much going on. So we moved them to every other week. And it's funny because everyone's like, I kind of miss them every week. So <laughs> it's kind of strange. That, I yeah. think it's weird to say that we miss our management meetings, but we, we get along really well and we keep each other very informed. That's great. Well, one of the things that you and I talked about um, is, is also about how you, uh, how you attract talent at the agent level and the process you go through in hiring people because you, you, you do a lot before you bring an agent on. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how you find agents, how you, you know, how, how do you attract them? How do you recruit them? What's the process that you put them through? You know, it's, it's again, that's something that has evolved over the years. Um, I've never been one that like goes out on tour and goes and I don't want to say stalks, but I feel like that's kind of what it is. Like stalks an agent that's a top producer or, you know, I feel like um, majority of the agents, I, I'd have to say probably around 90% are brought from within the company. You know, one of our agents has done a lot of deals with them or they really, really like them and respect them. And they're usually like, hey, I think you should talk to them or, hey, we were talking about it and, I, and you know, I want to make a soft introduction. That happens nine times out of ten. Um, if that's the case, I'll usually go meet with them in sort of a casual way, just sort of face-to-face over coffee or lunch. Um, if we're interested, we go next steps where I walk them through everything that we do and we talk about their business. Mm-hmm. Then if that feels like a, you know, again, next steps, then I introduce them to each one of the directors of the department. So they meet with my business partner, they meet with the sales manager, they meet with the transaction director, and they meet with the marketing director. And then if we all feel like it was a good fit, then we would offer them position you know, to come join the company. So and, and how long how long does that process take? I mean that, that sounds like a, a lot of um, you know a lot of separate interactions with them over a period of time. Well they're agents, so although there are I mean it, I just brought on a producer um, who transferred over with twenty two active transactions. Wow. And, you know, big producer. And for the Bay Area that's a lot, yeah. Um at any given time. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, and that was six years of staying in touch. Literally six years. Um, I have, and then of course, by the time she was ready, it'll happen within three months. Yeah. Right. So that's usually how it goes. Yeah. Um, sort of like a listing, right? I'm thinking of selling. I'm thinking of selling, and finally, like, oh my god, I want to get the house on the market in two weeks, and you got to hustle. Yeah. So it's sort of that way. Um, agents are not very. Rarely do they take years to know that they're uncomfortable and move. It's usually something that they don't discuss. They put their head down, and then. All of a sudden, they can't take it anymore, and they want to move, and they want to start talking to people today. So I often have those conversations with people over maybe a two-week period, mm-hmm. two- or three-week period. Um, so even though it's a lot of conversations, it happens. It happens compressed. Back-to-back. Uh, back yeah, it happens compressed. But people we, are motivated. Right. Right. Very, very compressed. It's not a long-term, like, oh, when you get a song, you know, come meet arts, and then – Oh, three weeks from now when you don't have anything going on, we'll introduce you to Kevin. You know, yeah. It's not like that. You, we move swiftly. But we try to keep that in place when we're meeting with everybody mm-hmm. so everybody has input and buy-in. You know, we want our staff to be excited about bringing on this producer. And, um, you know, sometimes they'll say, like, oh, I'm a little hesitant. This is what they were saying about transactions or this is how they do you know, right. They come up about ethics. Yeah. Or, um, so everyone vets from a very different angle, and it's all very valid. That's terrific. And, and I think very different. I mean, 
so much of the industry is driven by, you know, if if they're a productive agent, you just recruit them like you wouldn't necessarily have your staff weigh in on <laughs> the agents that you're bringing in. So that's a, a counter. I think it's counterintuitive for, for a lot of people in the industry about the, the importance of having the, the, the support team say, hey, th- this agent is somebody that we feel like we can work with and, and help become more productive and that they'll work well with us. Yeah. It's a big yeah, and it's you know, I, and there's times I, I admit like I'll like really really like someone, and be like I think they're great, and the rest of the staff like just shows me an entirely different perspective. Mm. So because I have a very high eye personality where I can pretty much strike up a conversation and find something that I like in just about anyone, mm-hmm. and I'm I, I'm I'm specific and I've got standards and whatnot, but I could be you know I could be very excited about something that they're like wow. But did you did you go here? And I really appreciate that about my staff for showing me a totally different perspective of like I didn't even didn't even occur to me to ask them that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. So um, and then they feel empowered because I actually listen to them and their mm. you know their input over my own. That's all. You know what I mean? That's There's great. times where I'm like absolutely not we're going with them, but um, nine times out of ten, again, if they say like Vanessa, we feel this way about it, um, I respect that opinion. So they. Well, and that's, I think that's huge as for business leaders to be able to recognize the strength of getting input from your team and not thinking it's all on your shoulders and actually making better decisions because of that and not just trying to, you know, say I'm, you know, I'm in charge, so I'm going to make, I'm going to do all of it, actually getting that input and being open and uh, accepting of that input and acting with it. Uh, I think it takes a level of maturity to do that. It's significant. I think I, I just read some Steve Jobs quote that said that, like he was like, uh, and it doesn't sound like Steve Jobs because I think his reputation was supposed to be of a micromanager, but one of the quotes recently about him was that he said, if I hired you, I want you to do your job. I don't want to tell you how to do your job. That's why I hired you. Yeah. And it really is that basic. Yeah. Like if I'm hiring you and paying you and, and you're here to fill this need, why would I come in and trump it? Yep. I mean, th- there are times when I'm very, uh, you know, dominant about what I want to happen and people might disagree and I will still push through and I am absolutely either guilty or successful in that. But there is more, there are probably more times, especially as we've evolved as a group and we've seen the trust and the, how it's all played out mm. that I really, that my, you know, that I've had my own maturity and growth around it and I'm like, oh, no, this is the way to do it. This is why I hired them and they're right. So, you know, something to keep in mind when you own, yeah, that's great. When you own any business. I yeah, it's great. So, um, well, tell us what are you what are you working on now for Red Oak? What's your you know what's your current you know what are your current initiatives? What are the things that that you're doing to to grow the company today? You know, we are um, we're definitely looking at more strategic partnerships with um, with other independents. You know, so we that's been a, kind of a goal over the last couple of years. Um, we're really trying to push you know, really push into becoming a stronger listing office. And, and that's sort of basic. I mean, everyone wants to be a strong listing office, but we've been really, really making sure that all of our trainings and our emphasis and, um, you know, the way we market, all of it's sort of tied to the idea of really sort of dominating the market um, more so from the listing side and making a switch to that from just a buy side. And I think that comes, I think that comes with, just overall growth and maturity of a brokerage, but it also comes with who you hire and, you know, how new your agents are or 
you know, the expectation of their own growth within their own career. So there's a lot of coaching and business planning with the people that we've had for a long time to, to help segue them over into wanting to be, you know, listing agents. And it's a very different role. I mean, most agents work with buy side and sell side, but, um, you know, there is a different strategy in the way you market yourself and the way you market your listings and how good you get at your presentations and the skill sets that um, I feel like there's a refinement. So we constantly train to that. We do a lot of listing clinics. So that's one piece of it. And that's nothing new. It's just very purposeful. You know, it's something that we haven't really, mm-hmm. I don't think we've hit our number there yet. So that's something we really put a focus on. And, you know, then we're looking at, um, we're always looking at potential like, you know, whether it's a merger um, or uh, an expansion into a new market and just figuring out, you know, what those markets will be and what we need to do to plan and invest in them. Um, and then, you know, frankly, a big part of what we're doing is getting very, very active um, within our city. You know, we, we make sure that we are very involved, not just with it from an agent level, but really with a consumer level, um, more so than, than I think most brokerages are. So we have a very purposeful sort of campaign around, making sure that we're giving money back to the city, that we're supporting programs, that we're aligning with the right, um, whether it's politicians, developers, um, uh, nonprofits, that we are really putting effort into community relationships um, because we care about the cities. It's not from only a business perspective. It's from, you know, really making sure that our dollars and our energy are going back into the places where we, where we buy and sell and live. So, that's really sort of a very strategic focus. We're not looking at getting huge. Um, there's something about the day-to-day existence of just knowing your agents and getting to know their clients and knowing their deals and seeing their listings and um, having them have a good relationship with each other that is more important than becoming the number one largest, you know, more agents than any other brokerage in the Bay Area. That's not mm-hmm. that's not our strategy. Growth would be more in market share growth than it would be in agent growth. Mm. Yeah, so helping your agents become, you know, b- uh, more productive and and better producers versus just trying to attract more individual people. Yeah, yeah, got it. Yeah, I mean, to- totally different. Approach, yeah. yeah, and I, I know you've also done you've become more engaged, kind of with the association and and you know working with CAR. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of your purposes for doing that? Yeah, you know, I think um, I feel like it's not that it's giving back, but you know. I sometimes have seen when I go to NAR, I've gone to CAR events, or even just my local board, that the that a lot of times the players that are there, it, it does take a huge amount of time, so it ends up being like a whole secondary career, and they start to get more into the organized real estate of, of theory than they do of practice, you know, so it's just more conceptual stuff and ideas that'll work and campaigns that'll work and and less about you know, the day-to-day effect on the local markets and the, you know, consumer satisfaction, et cetera. And I felt that um, there was always that disconnect when I saw that. And so really, it's sort of more leading by example and making sure that if we're going to merge, you know, this technology or the, the, broker, the local brokerage experience with the state and the national, we have to get involved. We can't just say like, oh, it doesn't do anything or it's ineffective. It's it's never going to do anything. It's going to remain ineffective if you don't get in and give it. Input. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I just decided to get as involved as I possibly could while still running my brokerage. And there's a definite cost. I mean, I have I go to CAR um, several times a quarter. Um, I'm out of my office and I'm there. 
but I feel like I'm learning. I'm seeing a perspective. Um, I'm, I'm having very deep conversations about, you know, the future of the industry and our fears and our needs and wants and bringing that back. And then I'm bringing true conversations of like the, you know, boots on the ground. This is what it takes to run a brokerage because the further up the chain you get in sort of any organized government role, the further you get from what's actually happening. And um, I think, you know, I think that's kind of provided a, a bit of a conduit for for that organization and what's really happening. And I feel like they've, they've listened, they've heard, they've, um, they've come back and asked more questions. And I think, you know, I, I feel like that's, I feel like that's the responsibility of a good brokerage. You cannot, it's one of those industries where you cannot just work in your own little micro bubble, right? Like, oh, it's just us. And as long as our brokerage does this, it's, it's good. We're fine. We're insulated. Because every deal you do and every consumer experience you have, you know, a lot of times it's going to be with an affiliate brokerage. It's going to be with a colleague. Mm. And um, that experience can be deeply affected in a very negative way if there's sort of like no compassion, no empathy, no understanding, no collaboration between the other brokerage. You know, where, where there's two to tango in this. Mm-hmm. I always say you're as good as your dance partner in real estate. Yeah. So we could have everything tied up and, you know, perfect and looking great. And then we do a deal with someone and they have no idea. And the whole thing is a horrible experience and everything goes awry. And um, so I feel like, you know, you, you that's how, one of the ways of giving back. You make sure that there's classes that everyone can go through on a, on a local level, that there's participation for all brokerages. I think that's a hugely important thing for the industry. Mm. It's, it's about competition, but it's more about collaboration because if they do well, I do well. Yeah. They're, both consumers had a good experience and they don't hate real estate. Yeah. And we're not worried about Zillow or these other things yeah. because <laughs> we have a professional relate, right? Yeah. So all these other threats become non-existent. But amazingly enough, I've sat down with brokers all the time. Like, why would I share that with them? Why would I do that? Why would I tell them to have better pictures online? Why would I, why would I tell them how to fill out the contract? Because you're in a deal with them. Yeah. I'm like, am I the only one that's seeing this? They're in bed with you. I mean, you should tell them exactly what to do if they're not doing it right. Help them learn. This is not about making them look bad because you never look, they never look bad. You all look bad. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway, that's a long story. <laughs> yes, I feel like everyone should get somewhat involved in these organizations, or someone within their company should go as a representative, so that those voices are heard and that they have an influence on the bigger picture. Well, I think that I think that is uh, we addressed it in the in the trends report uh, this the 2015 about the lack of involvement, you know, in association leadership by some some of the younger agents and younger brokers. And that we're going to get the leadership that we deserve, you know, if we don't get involved. And and, and, and I want to recognize you for that because that was something that at our first meeting you were very passionate about. And, you know, it, it is it does impact the the reputation our industry has and how well we cooperate with, you know, the other brokers that we do business with. So um, just really kudos to you for that and, and, and playing that role and, and being in a place in your business that you're able to do it. So uh, that's terrific. Yeah. Yeah, well, I am right now. Yeah, you are right. Now. Exactly. Again, like, oh. You do it when you you do it when you can. You know, it's not it's it's one of those right, things where exactly. it's, everybody's got to do their time uh, with volunteering. And you hope and you hope that you ins- and you hope that you inspire the next group yep. to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things is I I won't be able to do it forever, but I'm hoping that I can touch a few people or inspire a few people that will be like, you know what, I'll, I'll run with it. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's, that's what it's about, that's, a different perspective, like somebody with a good standard. So so last question for you, and then you've been very generous with your time, and I just want to say thank you for that. Um, our, our, my last question is, you know, we I, we invited you to, to become a mentor in the fellows program and to work with some of the T3 fellows who are, um, you know, these small brokers that are building their own uh, companies. What do you hope that they get out of that and, and that you want to contribute to them? Um, that, that what, what would be your best results for them? Um, I think it would be about, you know, I think there's something really um, brave and, and, and sort of fearless and smart about not only spending the money on this sort of program, but spending the time at, a, at, at the earlier stages to say, like, I want something more. I want to be better. I know I might not be doing it right, and I'm going to, you know, put my ego or my ideas or whatever it is a little bit to the side and, and take some of this information from, from somebody else that's done it before. And, sorry, I'm outside. Um, so I, I think I would, and, and, and then I think, again, there's that influence of standards. One of the things that I think brokers fail to do is they create standards, but they have a very hard time upholding them. Mm. And the best ones will tell you, that it wasn't so much their crafty ideas or that they put something in place. It was that they had the tenacity and the strength and the sort of fearlessness to keep it in place um, and not cave and really believe and get support that they were doing the right thing. And I think once you do that, once you create that standard and that almost becomes the culture, then the rest of the business really does come to you. It starts to flow. So um, I would just hope that if, if the people that are a part of this program put you know, put this time and energy and and take these concepts and put them into place that the rest of us that are part of the program can help them when they, you know, feel like they're going to fumble or that they, that we're there sort of as a support to say like, you know, you know, stay on this and, and, and keep it going and, and don't get scared now because um, that's really what it takes mm. is, is putting it in place and then keeping it in place. So I guess what I hope yeah. to do is just show them some of the things, some times that I was really like,